0: And Katie and others uh, who have assisted. It was a wonderful time. I heard Angela say this week uh, as Friday rolled around, someone was in talking with her, and she said, "Uh, I really think Bart enjoyed it because every day he came back from Bible school and said, Oh, man, I love VBS. So we had a great week. The kids were so good and uh, attentive, and to get the gospel to them. And to share with them the life of the Apostle Paul was wonderful. The material was good. And I just had a great week. So um, I'm pretty excited to come and share with you today from the Lord's Word. Uh, I'm also very thankful for our band. I've got to show you all something. David, I'm going to mess with you. Where are you, David Love? Where'd you go? All right. Uh, BJ, is it okay if I pick this up? Okay. Is it okay if I unplug it? Okay. David Love built this guitar and covered it with old hymns. The finish on this guitar, because he lives, come thou fount of every blessing, whiter than snow. There is a fountain filled with blood. His name is wonderful. Great is thy faithfulness. Grace greater than our sin. A mighty fortress is our God. Blessed Redeemer, amazing grace. That's what covers this guitar that he made. Does David rock or what? <laughs> Hey, Dave, when you get back up here, you may want to plug it back in, okay? Um, We are so blessed with our musicians who come in here every week. Had our young group up here today. They did such a good job, and I'm so thankful for Sean and his leadership and uh, just leading us in worship week by week, and it's a joy to be with y'all. I love y'all, and it is so much fun to share God's Word with you. You know, the big news story this week, I don't know if you followed the news, but the big news story this week was the NSA, National Security Agency, uh, spying on people. Did y'all hear that? Did y'all see that? It's kind of a big deal. Uh, I have read one article where it says they can even uh, in in instances watch you as you type exactly whatever thoughts you're putting down and know what you're thinking, know what you're doing, know where you are, track you on your cell phone, uh, keep up with you through your iPad, uh, know through certain ways exactly who you're talking to. And it was kind of scary, and I think the story uh, just went kind of ballistic. Uh, Folks reading emails, listening to phone calls, internet sites, surfing, social media, chat, that the government could see and hear everything that we do, and there's a lot of skirmish, and I think it was rightly so, because the idea of somebody knowing all of that just is a little bit scary. But I want to take you to Luke chapter 12, verse 2, for just a moment. Just let you jump there, put your eyes on this text, and then from there, jump back into Hebrews chapter 9 and kind of finish chapter 9 out today with some things that are important. Important for us. We probably will dovetail 9 into 10 a week after next, but today kind of getting to that central point of 9 and enjoying that together. So, Luke chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says something very powerful that should scare you more than the NSA uh, watching your chat room or your email or your uh, Facebook or whatever you're doing. Here's what Jesus said, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Wow. Now, when the government snoops on you, that's just not cool. But the fact is, is that God knows everything. Everything. And that there is no way we can paint a facade, put a covering on who we are really down in our soul. Because one day God is going to uncover everything nothing hidden, no secrets. Everything known. Now that should frighten us way more than the idea of government intrusion. Because ultimately God is our judge. And He is going to bring into account every bit of our lives. And the stirring that we feel with the knowledge of that, the stirring we should feel with the knowledge of that, is what the Bible calls conscience. And in the book of Hebrews, as we go back there to chapter 9, we're going to observe today a reminder of something we've already covered, what can't clear the conscience, what can't cleanse the conscience, what can't comfort the conscience and what can and what should come of that. And so we begin, number one, with something that's important in Hebrews 9. Number one, the reality of our separation. The reality of our separation. The language that is used in Hebrews 9 is important to us. It's the language of separation. There's a reason for it. And the language that is used is language we're not accustomed to. So we have to kind of go back and look a little bit into the Word and see what the writer was talking about as he was talking to the folks who grew up in a Jewish community and had a really good idea, uh, just second nature, exactly what he was describing. That's not so with us. So sometimes we have to jump back into the Old Testament and think a little bit about these things. The idea of separation that is given in Hebrews 9 is two areas. The first idea is a separation from God. It's described to it in chapter 9, verse 7. So let's go there. Now, just before that, he had just described the temple. There was an outside, then there was an inner court which was called a holy place, and then there was a most holy place. People, when they had been ceremonially cleansed, could come into the holy place, but no one other than the high priest could go into the most holy place and then only once a year and then not without blood. So you see... In verse 7, But into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in, in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying. Stop right there. In other words, there's a lesson in this. The Holy Spirit's telling something through this annual thing called the Day of Atonement where the high priest is the only one who can enter and he can only enter after blood is shed. The Holy Spirit is teaching something through that. What is he teaching? The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed. What he's saying is that there is a separation between God and man still in existence during the time of the temple worship. And that that separation was a separation of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And that the way for sinful people to get into the presence of a holy God from whom they had been separated, had not yet been revealed. It was a secret. It was a mystery hidden and then revealed later. And so during that temple construction and all the years of service, over and over, a lesson of separation was being made. Now there's an importance to this. This is the separation that began in the Garden of of Eden. In Genesis 2, when God puts the man into the garden, plants the garden there, makes Eve out of Adam's rib, gives the two the assignment of keeping, tending the garden under his care, having dominion over the earth, being fruitful to multiply, all of these things. There was no separation. God and mankind, God, Adam and Eve, all walked together with no separation in perfect fellowship. They beheld Him. He walked with them. They had perfect intimacy and fellowship. A liar, a deceiver, stepped into that, lied to Adam and Eve. They... Believed the liar rather than the creator. They fell for his trickery and deceit. Immediately, the sense of separation. For the first time ever, a thing called insecurity came to them. They got together and sensed a separation between each other. So they sowed fig leaves to cover from each other their sense of nakedness. And then when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, they fled into the woods to hide from God. And so this sense of separation really was threefold. The sense of separation was between God and man. They ran from God. Between mankind and mankind, Adam and Eve, felt the need to cover themselves from each other's eyes and try to hide something. And then there was a separation between them and the created order. What had before served them would now one day consume them. This created order would be filled with things broken. There would be tornadoes and hurricanes. There would be disease and famine. There would be death. And this created order now was separated from them rather than serving them. They were at enmity even with the creation so that now rather than being under the dominion, the tiger eats you. Rather than being under the dominion, the snake bites you. Rather than being under the dominion, disease will come and overtake you. And so this separation occurred in the time that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience. That separation was continually rehearsed by the worship services and continually rehearsed by the rules and regulations. Now, it's interesting how the writer to the Hebrews addresses this separation in two illustrations. So, Adam and Eve... They're separated, covering, a sense of insecurity even from each other. Adam and Eve and God separated, hide from God. Adam and Eve and the created order now, thorns and thistles, are going to come up, sweat of the brow. You were made out of this created stuff and you're going to go back into it to the dust. You're going to return and they have this sense of insecurity. It is called conscience. Their consciences are awakened and it makes them feel insecure with God, with each other, and insecure on this fragile planet. Now the way that the writer to the Hebrews addresses these is very important. So come with me to chapter 9 and come on down a little further and look with me. We're going to really have to pick up in verse 11, but the two things that I want to share with you are particular in verse 12, 13, and 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, so that means something's changing now. There was an old system that constantly reminded you of the separation. But the good things to come are different. Christ brings these things. What are they? He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. That means heaven itself. And not through the blood of goats and calves. Remember that before the high priest could make that entry into the holy place, the separation was marked by death. And in order for the high priest to step in there, and be in the presence of God, he would have to slaughter the animals. This blood of goats and bulls allowed him a temporary passing into the presence of God, and then he had to come right back out. It says, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through Jesus' own blood, he entered the holy place once for all. That means it's not going to be an annual thing. It's a permanent thing. Having obtained eternal redemption... Now, he's going to bring up the two issues of separation that I want you to note and then we're going to have to take a minute and go to the Old Testament to look at them. Look in verse 13. He's going to talk about two kinds of separation here. For if the blood of goats and bulls. That's one kind of separation. When he makes that reference, he's making a reference to the day of atonement that was mentioned earlier that allowed a man to break through that barrier, that veil, and step temporarily into the presence of God and come right back out. But he couldn't stay. The presence of God could not be eternally enjoyed. He had to come back out. So this blood of bulls and goats is a reference to the separation between man and God. There's very interesting what comes next. And the ashes of a heifer. Now, I just want to ask you something and, and and I want you to be really honest with me. Do you have any idea what the ashes of a heifer are talking about? If you don't, will you raise your hand? It's okay. Because most people don't. I'm one of those who didn't until I really studied this. Most people, when you say, ashes of a heifer, we go, what? What's a heifer? And why ashes? So when something this important pops up in the book of Hebrews, and we don't know what it means, what should we do? We ought to go hunting for it. Well, I'd take some time and say that this is an apex moment in the book of Hebrews. It's a glorious moment. Paul, the the writer of Hebrews, is coming to this punch point. He's coming and saying, bam, here it is. This is it. But he drops this word, ashes of a heifer sprinkling. When I read that before I studied this, do you know what I said? I said, what we all say. I said, huh? What is it? Ashes of a heifer sprinkling. So that means we have to go and do some homework. Y'all want to do that? Let's do that. All right. We're going to have to go to the book of Numbers to do it. Okay? So join me. We're going to go all the way back. We're going to go to the book of Numbers to chapter 19. Something is going to be said here very important about separation. Some Bibles in chapter 19 will actually have a heading that says, "Ordinance of the Red Heifer. Every now and then you'll hear some kind of news flash that a red heifer's been spotted in Israel, and that means the end times are coming. Well, that's really not what's happening. Uh, A red heifer meant it was a particular color, and the word heifer actually means a mature cow that has never given birth. It's not a calf, but it's a mature cow, lady cow, girl cow, never given birth. That's what heifer means. Now, we throw the word heifer around, we don't mean it like that, I don't think. Anyway, uh. I've not heard it used in a really good tone other than in the Bible, okay? So in in this instance, the word heifer actually means this cow at the peak of life in its prime. So it would be very valuable. The ordinance of the red heifer was an important ordinance in Israel because of some consequences tied to it. So let's read it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, that they bring you an unblemished red heifer, which has no defect, on which no yoke has ever been placed. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, and its hide and flesh and its blood with its refuse shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer." The priest shall then wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterward come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water, and bathe his body in water, and shall be unclean until evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place, and the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. Watch that. Important things you just said. It is purification from sin. But it's going to re- represent something even more. Watch what happens here. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes, be unclean till evening, and it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from the uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and he shall be clean. Now stop there. Let's follow the thought. With what water? The water... Of the ashes of the red heifer. They've taken that ash and they've mixed it with water. And that water now has a particular cleansing meaning. If a person comes in contact with someone dead, they're unclean for seven days. So on the third day, they have to be anointed, sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer. And then again on the seventh day. And on the seventh day, they're no longer unclean. So watch what it says. But if he does not purify himself on the third and on the seventh day, he shall not be clean. Verse 13. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Stop there. There was a law that God put down that when you came into contact with a dead person, you became unclean. The ashes of the red heifer had to be applied to your body on the third day and on the seventh day in order for you to become clean again. But if you did not go for that cleansing, it says here, he shall be cut off from the people permanently. Verse 14, this is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. And every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone in the open field touches one who's been slain with a sword or who's died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Then the unclean person shall take some of the ashes of the burnt uh, purification This is the red heifer from sin, and flowing water, and shall be added to them in a vessel. And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on the furnishings. And the ones who were there, on the one who touched the bone, or the one who touched the one slain, or dying naturally, or the grave, then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify him from uncleanness, and he shall wash his clothes and Bathe and be clean by evening. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean, and this is a perpetual statute. Okay, stop there. Now, this particular chapter is inserted in Hebrews 9 with a passing statement. So let's go back there. So if you were an Israelite, a Hebrew and the book of Hebrews was written to you, and you got to chapter 9, and they were reading this to you, or you were reading the letter yourself, and they got to verse 13, you would be very aware that two kinds of separation have just been mentioned one is the separation from God the other is the separation from God's people the separation from each other one is your ability to stand accepted by God the other is your ability to be a part of the people that are accepted by God or to be excluded from that So here's something that the writer is addressing at this point that's very important. When God begins to work on the conscience, our consciences are nasty critters. They serve a very good purpose, but they also can become the motive for things that we do. Like a man who has a guilty conscience because he's done evil lies to cover his evil or murders to cover his evil or or makes bigger, bigger sin to cover his evil. Because the conscience has a sense that it is out of kilter with two things, with God and with people. It feels that it is not accepted by people it feels that it is not accepted by God. It is terribly insecure. And so it begins motivating certain acts and actions that are very, very bad. A guilty conscience begins to disturb one's own peace, causes one to sin further, causes one to live in fear. A guilty conscience is good and it's bad. It's good in that it awakens us to our separation from God and our alienation from people. But when our consciences are not properly dealt with they become masters over us. They become twisted and they begin motivating us to make pretense with each other and to try to win favor with God through doing certain things. Religions are born of guilty consciences. Sin is often born of guilty consciences. The rejection of truth is often born of a guilty conscience because if we accept that truth, it exposes our guilt. And so we often reject truth because that truth Hits us square in the conscience and makes us aware of our sin, and so we push away. What's happening in Hebrews is that he is exposing the two kinds of separation that ought to trouble every human conscience. The separation from God that says that the highest and holiest religion, the religion of the Jews, Even it could never get you through the veil into the presence of God because your sin was not yet dealt with. And the red heifer is about people being unclean and unfit to be in the company of others. It was about the alienation of sin from each other. It was about the alienation of the fall from each other. So what's happening in Hebrews is very important because God is wanting to remedy two clear things. He wants you to know how to stand in His presence with a clear conscience so that you can enjoy That presence. And he wants you to be able to relate to other human beings with a clear conscience so that you no longer have to pretend. You no longer have to cover. You no longer have to deceive. You no longer have to be filled with pride. You no longer have to manipulate. You can be exactly who God made you to be and be perfectly comfortable with that once your conscience is clean. And so God is operating on two things at two levels right now. The blood of goats and bulls is the story of your separation and alienation from God. And the ashes of the red heifer are the story of your alienation and uncleanness that separates you from people, apart from which you will forever be excluded from the people of God. Now here's where it gets messed up. It gets messed up when we try to remedy our conscience with anything other than the gospel. We say, my conscience is bothering me after the sermon today, so I'm going to read my Scripture more devoutly this week. That's not a good idea. You say, Pastor Bart, why? Because God does not want to cleanse your conscience with your work. God wants to clear your conscience with just one that sense of alienation and separation you feel with other human beings. God wants to remedy that not by you becoming religious in their sight so that they'll applaud you for your works. That's what Jesus told the pharisees was wrong he said you are the guys that justify yourselves in the presence of men when we feel alienated from other human beings we either withdraw in anger or we try to make pretense to gain acceptance from them rather than being able with a clean conscience to be who we are all the time and comfortable with that and so the two things are mentioned in hebrews 9 Verse 13, blood of goats and bulls, separation from God because of sin. Ashes of a heifer sprinkling, separation from people because of the uncleanness that makes you unfit for the community of God. If those two things sanctify by sprinkling for the cleansing of the flesh, Okay, so they would clean their outside so they could come back into the camp. On day three, clean them, sprinkle it on them. Day seven, clean and sprinkle it on them. Evening time, day seven, move back in your house, go back to your family, get back with your people, be accepted back in the people of God. These were all outward signs. The blood of bulls and goats would give an outward sign of an entry for a moment into the presence of God where the separation would come down momentarily, but He'd have to come right back out. So the two things that God is after in cleansing your conscience is this. For you to have right fellowship with Him and to desire His presence rather than to flee from it. And for you to have right fellowship with people and no longer be under the pressure of a guilty conscience that makes you feel insecure and makes you manipulate things to present yourself as something other than what you really are. God is wanting to remedy those two things, but there's only one thing that can do it. Let's read. In verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. Verse 14, let's go to number 2, Peggy the supremacy of our salvation. This is a phrase that the writer of the Hebrews uses several times in the book. He says, How much more! (laughs) In other words, if that day of atonement, when they had that offering the high priest got to, got to squeeze past the veil and stand for a moment and behold the glory of God dwelling above the cherubim. And he came back out and he said, Hey guys, we're accepted again for another year. God's not departed from us. Woo! And everybody would celebrate and enjoy that. Okay, that's good. If you'd been defiled and you had touched this thing and you were... Think about being away from your family for seven days because you touched a dead person. Uh, Day one, day two, day three, sprinkle. Day four, day five, day six, day seven, sprinkle. Oh, I'm home, guys. Good to be back. Glad to be able to touch y'all again because for the last seven days I didn't touch anybody because I would have made them unclean. I'm accepted back. If those things could give you that temporary moment, how much more? And this is just exploding the largeness of Jesus. Read it. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience. God wants to wash you in such a way at the core of your being that you can have fellowship with Him and desire to draw near to Him rather than to pull away from Him. To desire to be in His presence rather than to flee from it. It is the undoing of the fall in Adam and Eve where Adam and Eve now, they're, they're, they're messed up with each other and they're having to make pretense by sewing up clothes and doing religious things that so-called cover them and in each other's sight. That's what we do. That's what we do when we're, when our consciences aren't right. We begin to make pretense of religion and cover ourselves with something that's not who we are just so we'll accept each other and we run from God and we hide and here the blood of Jesus is doing something. It is washing away your sin so completely that you can behold the presence of the living God and love God being in His presence and enjoy fellowship with Him and want to do what Hebrews 4 says and want to do what Hebrews 10 and 12 say. want to draw near to Him because things are changed. I don't have to pretend and I don't have to run. I don't have to cover and I don't have to hide. Things are different because God has washed my sin away. How much more will the blood of Jesus who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Notice what says next. And we'll quickly cover this. I wish I could camp here for a long time, but I can't. Cleanse your conscience from dead works. Now this is a beautiful statement because dead works is a statement that encompasses all of human performance. Whether it is that performance of failure, when we sin, or the desire to make up for our failure by trying harder and doing better, both of those are dead works. Both of those lead to death. Both of those are are enslaved by death. Both of those are death. Both the sin and the attempt to cover it. The sin and the attempt to make up for it. The sin and the desire to pay for it. Those are both dead works. And the only way our consciences can be clear is if we are clear from both of those. What does that mean? It means first that our sin is removed and we no longer try to make up for it by doing religious things. This is important because the fundamental motive for our service in religion is now shifted. If our conscience is dirty, all of our motive in religion is to make up for or to cover or to atone or to balance or to hide. And that is detestable in God's sight. And so if you came to church today out of guilt, trying to make up for what you did maybe Friday night, it's not working. It's not working at all. There's only one thing that can wash your conscience. It is the blood of Jesus. That is the only thing Y'all know Isaac Watts, right? The hymn writer. You've heard of him? Listen to this hymn. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine while like a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. My soul looks back to see the burdens thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree and hopes her guilt was there. Believing, we rejoice to see the curse removed. We bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing His bleeding love. What was Isaac saying? He was saying, you can do all the works you want and all the religion you try. And it's never going to make you feel right when you stand in God's presence. And it's never going to make you feel right when you stand in people's presence. The only thing is when your conscience has been washed clean. And that, I love Galatians, when... when. They're having that wrestling with Peter and Paul and then in the book of Acts a similar wrestling. And in Acts, Peter's talking and he said about the Gentiles that God had cleansed their heart by faith. Do you know how our consciences are cleansed? By personal faith in Jesus Christ. That's all. When we have genuine, repentant faith in Christ, the Messiah. He does something in us. He washes our conscience clean so that we do not have to pretend with each other and so that we can stand in the presence of God with joy, desiring to be there. But look at the last thing. Number three, Peggy, and this is what it all leads to. This is where he's going with it what happens? When this occurs, we receive the liberty of our service. Look in verse 14 again and look at what's happening. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit. okay, here's Christ cleansing my conscience. What does he say? Who offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from what? Dead works. That is the sins I did and the Foolishness of thinking I could make up for it by doing other works. I'm putting both of those aside. All of the things of human performance. And what will come of that? Look. To serve the living God. What happens when my conscience is cleansed by the gospel is I begin to serve God out of a genuine love and gratitude. Not to make up for how foolish and sinful I've been not to try to undo the wrongs by doing a number of rights and bring it back into balance. I begin to serve God out of a love for my Redeemer. I fall deeply in love with the One who set my conscience free. And because of that, I can serve fellow humans without regard of what they think of me. I can do it now not for the recognition given to me. I can fall into letting my light so shine before men that others may see my good works and give glory to God. That's what I get to here. When my conscience is freed, it changes how I feel about God's presence. I desire it. And how I feel about people's presence. I no longer have to pretend. I no longer have to cover. I no longer have to sow the fig leaves of my works over the sinfulness of who I am to try to impress your eyes and let you accept me. With clean conscience, I can operate with God and man serving Him. This is where He's been going the whole time. He's not just trying to pack a theology into our brain about redemption. He's trying to show how this affects every relationship we have. In fact, I want to tell you, my brothers and sisters, so much of what we do is born of an unclean conscience that it is scary. And of all the people on earth, the one group that ought to be walking with a clean conscience because of Christ should be the church joyfully running to the presence of God and joyfully enjoying the presence of each other without pretense or falsehood because our redeemer has washed us. There is a hymn I grew up singing it rings in my head very often it says down at the cross where, my Savior died. Down where for cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to His name. Isn't that great? And the, the, the way the hymn goes on is glory to His name, glory to His name. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to His name. I am so wondrously saved from sin. Jesus so sweetly abides within. There at the cross where He took me in. Glory to His name. Glory to His name. Glory to His name. There at the cross was the blood applied. Glory to His name. O precious fountain that saves from sin. I am so glad I have entered in. There Jesus saves me and keeps me me clean. Glory to His name. It's so sweet because the song ends with an invitation. It says, Come to this fountain so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made Glory to His name. Would you bow with me?